Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip tackles questions such as, should I max out my 401k? What is the gambler's mentality? How do you stack up against door-to-door advisors? What's the importance of insurance reviews? Plus, an interview with attorney Sean Tate. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now, here's Philip. All right, we are back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast. I have a special guest today, a returning guest today. I don't even remember which episode Sean was on, but it's Sean Tate. Sean Tate is a, a business attorney, real estate attorney, securities law attorney. Basically, if you need to raise some money or put together some contracts or agreements to get some money or protect your money, Sean is the expert in that arena. So thanks for coming back on, Sean. Yeah, very happy to be here with you today. Did I, did I leave anything else off there? I, I think you got a, a golf game, too. You, you like golf on the weekend, so you like a, I, I saw that on Instagram or somewhere. Man, listen, listen. From humble beginnings, bro, because I'm I'm still figuring out the golf game. I was out there this morning hitting a few, and uh, I've got a long way to go, you know. But hey, it's something to look forward to, right? I quit. Always something new to work on. I quit. I just quit. I straight quit golf. It was one day. Some, everybody kept saying, "You got to play for business. You got to play for business." And so I would play, but I'm just too competitive to play for fun. You know, I would just be stressed whenever I would go play it. I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, there's lots of better ways to get business and doing this because this is just too stressful for me because I don't have the time to get good. So I just literally quit. Like I haven't been golfing in like four years, so something like that. It's been a long time. Really, I was kind of forced into it. You know, the, the law firm that I interned at and ended up working at first had an annual golf tournament. And uh, so at the end of our internships, they had, you know, the interns go play. And so I had never picked up a club in my life. So I went out and got a, a set of clubs on Craigslist, left-handed clubs because I'm left-handed. You know, went to the driving range every day, and uh, I think I I think I was able to actually connect with the ball like twice during the whole <laughs> during the whole round. So I mean, it's a it's a lifelong thing, man. You either got to commit to it or not. So I feel you. Either get in or, or just move out the way when it comes to golf. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's get into it. So w- w- topic of today is raising money right when when there's a there's a whole lot of money out uh, in the world chasing uh, good returns and you know we we've you know you have cycles where the flow of money ebbs and flow right there's times when banks are lending out and giving to everybody and being silly with money and then there's times when they're real tight with it and there's other alternative ways to raise money from family offices rich people which i guess is the same thing funds institutions all that kind of stuff and so <laughs> So we're in a period of time right. where, you know, the banks just haven't been giving as much money. And so there's a lot of other – and I don't think the banks are going to return to dominating finance the way they did before because there's so many other alternative ways to to, to, to finance uh, ventures these days. So let's talk about, like, you know, what what's needed to raise money. We'll look at a couple different topics, but let, let's start with, let's say, if you have a you have a business – and you you say okay mm-hmm. I have an idea I have a process but I need to raise money like what's the first thing I need to do? Okay, that's a great question. Great question. So I think it really starts um, with with all things with the deal, right? So 
Um, you mentioned the first thing you said was I have a, a great process or, you know, I have a great product. I have something great in place. That's where it really all starts. Um, you want to focus on that first, making sure that your business is as, as tight and efficient as it can possibly be in the way it's run, um, that you have a clear understanding of where your business is going, what its mission is, uh, how it intends to make money uh, in the long run, because you can't raise money if you can't make money, right? So mm-hmm. you, you need to have a real value proposition. You need to understand the market that you're in, understand your competition, uh, and how you're going to add something different you know, than what they have. So really, before you raise money, what are you raising money for? You know, I always, I always uh, send people back to that because that is going to be what really decides whether or not you're going to end up with something in your account or not. How strong is the deal? Now, once you get to a point where, you know, you've, you've developed a business plan that accounts for all of the different, uh, all of the different terms I just sort of lay, laid out there, uh, the next step is to go get your money. Generally, folks start with, quote unquote, friends and family. But, you know, I kind of want to dig into that because there's, a, there's an assumption there. And the assumption there is that you're in a position where your friends and family have the kind of money you need to launch your business, right? <laughs> right, right. So there's, a, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a classist aspect to that that you won't hear a lot of folks in the venture capital world uh, talk about. I'd say more now than before. You're starting to hear those conversations uh, happen. Um, but even, you know, two, three years ago, five years ago, definitely, it was just, oh, of course. Well, you know, to get that first hundred thousand or so to just kind of right. <laughs> very basic, mm-hmm. you go to friends and family. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, unfortunately, there's no outright solution for that. But the best thing that you can do in, the, in those scenarios where you don't have friends and family, it goes back to having a really strong business, a really strong business. And what happens when you have a really strong business? Well, there are now platforms available where you can raise money from a lot of people to get your business started. So if you don't have that friends and family group, which most folks don't, you know, but you have that great idea and you have that great business, I'd say probably the most popular way today to really get yourself going is through a crowdfund, right? So uh, crowdfunding is not just a word that we all have heard bandied about quite a bit. Uh, It has its roots in, um, you know, in in, in the legal world um, and in securities law. Crowd funds are put together under what's called Regulation CF, crowd fund, and not that complicated, you know, Regulation CF, um, which allows you to raise up to $1.07 million within a 12-month period. And you can raise it as long as you follow the right rules and you set, set it up correctly from anybody, right? So you don't, you, know, it, it, you don't have to have it be your friends and family. It can be anybody. So the reason that's really important is you know understanding how you're allowed to raise money is is probably the key thing to knowing how you're going to eventually raise it is how you're allowed to raise it. So you can raise money from your friends and your family with no repercussions. The laws don't really care very much about that, right? So the Securities and Exchange Commission is not going to come for you if you get your mom and dad to front your deal, right? But again, most entrepreneurs don't have a mom or dad who are in a position to front their deal, mm-hmm. right? So they have to go out to the market. And when you go out to the market, now you are subject to the regulations set forth by the IRS and by the Security and Exchange Commission. And the reason is because the uh, Congress has decided that the public needs to be protected from bad deals, 
from bad investments, right? So the government says, listen, if you want to go out and pitch your deal to people you don't know personally who, you know, aren't going to already just give you money because they like you, you know, uh, then you need to show them that you've met certain criteria, right? So you have to explain, again, back to the strength of your business plan, explain exactly what the business is, exactly what it's doing, and from there, exactly what the risks are that are involved in their investment, right? And so they need to understand this investment may not work at all, right? Uh, The market could change. Another competitor could come into play. We could lose our financing, you know, from on the lender side, when you get to that point, right? They, they need to understand all these things. And so a regulation CF or a crowd fund puts all that paperwork together for you, right? It makes sure that all that's in place so that when you bring an investor on, even though you don't know them, you know that you've disclosed every risk. You've told them everything they need to know about how to run their business, how you're going to run your business. Excuse me, I mean to say how you're going to run your business. And then they have made their decision about putting their money up, Right. So that is at, at this point, I'd say it's, it's definitely the fastest growing, if not the most common way for for uh, new ventures that don't have, you know, that kind of background already to get started, to get off the ground. Um, Reg CF is extremely complicated. Um, there's a lot to it. The toughest part about it is keeping track of all these investors that you don't know. And so the best way to do it is to go through existing, in my opinion, existing platforms. Right. So it's not something that you kind of go build yourself. Uh, but we've all heard of, you know, platforms like Yield Street um, and others that, you know, allow you to basically put your deal on their platform and let the world take a look at it. Again, I would say for, for new folks who don't have that kind of them that can help them to the next level, your deal has to be airtight. It has to be the best deal out there because you're going to be competing with everybody else's great deal on websites and platforms like Yield Street. There's 10 other ones. Um, to, to be able to uh, get your deals funded, right? And again, you're able to raise up to $1.07 million every 12 months under XCF. Now, if you do have people around you that have, have a little money, right? Because not everybody's in that position, then it's a different type of structure. It's usually one of two things. Either you are offering preferred equity in your company, which is basically saying, hey, I'm going to give you some shares in my company, Right. And I'm going to tell you the basics, you know, of how I'm going to run the company and how you're going to get your money back. But it's not as high of a bar that you have to meet as it is when you go to a crowd. Right. People you don't know. I'm going to tell you basically how this needs to happen, though, um, and how I'm going to run the business. And, you know, I'm going to give you equity in the business. And as a part of your equity, as a part of your shares of the business, you're going to get the big chunk of the profit. You're going to get the lion's share of the profit for X number of years or X number of months, right? And so in that way, people, you know, can invest in your business, but they have to be close to you, right? They can't be random folks. Uh, they can invest in your business and, um, and they can be, you know, preferred equity partners. Uh, another opportunity is what's called a convertible note. So that's when people just want to be a lender. They don't necessarily want um, equity in your company. They just want to lend you some money. And you're going to pay them back just like you're paying back a credit card, right? So somebody lends you 100 grand and they say, hey, you know, 10% interest on this, then you're going to pay them, you know, how much is that? 10,000 bucks, you know, 10,000 bucks a year in interest. Um, And if at a certain point they decide they want to convert that to equity, then they can. So that's a really great situation for an investor who 
you know, they kind of like you, they rock with you, but you know, they don't necessarily want to go all the way in with you. Mm-hmm. you. Give them a convertible note. You have to start paying back that interest immediately. So they know they're going to be getting a little bit of return at least, at least a little bit of return. Whereas, you know, your investors in equity, they don't have any guarantee of return. At least your convertible note knows it's going to get a little bit of return. Uh, return. And then again, it's convertible. So if they decide later, Hey, you know, I really like how they're running this business. I want a lot more out of this than, you know, my little, you know, 800 bucks a month. I want to convert this to equity now. Then they can make a decision to convert that to equity. Right. So there's several different ways you can go about getting that first check in the door for a business, you know, for a new business uh, that's getting off the ground. And it's generally going to be, you know, the uh, friends and family, which you can just raise that money and get them in, you know, with a, uh, you know, preferred equity structure or a convertible note. Or if you don't have anybody around you who can do that kind of thing, then crowdfunding is the is the biggest way that sort of, you know, fundraising has been the beginnings of democratizing fundraising are kind of happening through the crowdfunding uh, platform. But in, in both cases, the key is, especially with crowdfunding, how strong is your deal? How well fine-tuned is your business plan um so it all starts with your deal so what if somebody says hey, okay i want to i want to raise a real estate fund everybody everybody's trying to buy the block these days so how, how does that work <laughs> yeah that's a little bit that is man it's a very common thing these days um and i can tell you for one i just want to say i'm excited about it you know i think it's great that people are thinking about how to grow you know long-term wealth generational wealth and as you know, Philip, it's not it's not some magic silver bullet to invest in real estate, but it can be an extremely uh, lucrative part of your investment portfolio mm-hmm. if you do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's probably there's probably too many folks in it, you know, at this point. But <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, they're there because the returns can be really, really attractive uh, if it's done well. So when people talk about raising a fund for real estate, um, they they tend to kind of go a little bit bigger than where they should be to start, right? Um, so when you're raising a fund for real estate, um, you, you generally are going to want to have some experience, first of all. I would want to say that. It doesn't have to be a ton of experience. I'm not saying you have to own a 1,000 units to be able to go raise money. But if you've never done real estate before, you know, then it's probably best to start by investing, in someone else's deal, right? That's the best way to learn. That's the best way to get there. And that can vary. That can vary from, uh, okay, my buddy is out flipping houses and you know I wanna get into real estate, so maybe I'll put a little money into his next deal and I can learn about how a deal is structured, right? You can learn some basic things from that. Um, but at the end of the day, if you wanna get into the, you know, the big money side of real estate, you wanna be investing in larger deals, right? So I hear a lot of folks talk about, when they talk about buying the block, they're talking about multifamily. Or they're talking about buying not one house or two houses, but 20 houses, 30 houses, you know, the 10, 15 duplexes, you know, that kind of thing. They want to, you know, really own, you know, a piece of a piece of their area. And I, and I understand that. Um, but the best way to do that is to start by investing with someone else who's already doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that would be just my first piece of advice there would be start by working with someone else. There's no school for this kind of thing. It's an experience based business. And it's the way I learned, you know, I mean, my, my first investments uh, were with people who had already done it. 
you know, and I'm like, and I, and I got to watch, I got to see how they put it together, you know? So who did you pick for a contractor? So how does equity versus debt really work? You know, what are you using my money for versus the money that comes from the bank? Right. So what's the, what's the construction timeline look like? Why do we need engineering reports? Title? What's that about? You know what I mean? Like these are things that, you know, you can try to read them in a book if you like. And I'm sure there's plenty of books, with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages that would go through these things for you, but there's no teacher like experience. And the great thing about finding a good investor to get involved with is you can gain some of that experience and knowledge and make yourself some money at the same time. So that's what I would recommend uh, for brand new investors. Now, for folks that are ready to take it to the next level, who have already kind of gone through that process, who understand how to invest, there are uh, two main vehicles, two really popular vehicles for raising money for real estate deals. And that's going to be uh, uh, 506B and 506C fundraisers. Okay, so Rule 506 is an IRS rule that basically is an exemption from the requirement that you have a public offering, an IPO, go to the stock market in order to raise money from people, right? And so 506B and 506C are the ways that most people raise money for real estate deals. The amounts that you'll see raised, I've probably seen as low as, you know, a million bucks, even like 800,000 bucks as high as it's literally unlimited, but the highest I've personally worked on is about 85 million. Right. And so the deals are going to vary with, you know, the amount you're raising. So if you're going to buy, for example, I'm going to use nice clean numbers here and multifamily uh, property that's 100 units and it costs exactly $10 million, you know, which is, you know, nice whole numbers. Well, if it's a $10 million property, you're going to need to bring about 30% equity to the table, and then you go to your lender for the rest. That's generally how they're constructed. So let's call it 330, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, 3.3 million <laughs> that you need to raise. And, and, uh, and so what you do is you go out to the market um, with a 506B or a 506C fundraising model to be able to get that money. Um, so what does that look like, or what does that mean? Well, First, I'll tell you the difference between 506B and 506C. So a 506C raise, essentially what it means is everybody who you raise money from is already a good investor. They've already done it. They make a lot of money. They have a lot of assets. There are particular rules around what that means, but essentially the way the IRS defines them is as accredited investors, right? So these are folks that are already in the game. They got a million bucks plus in assets already. They make over 300 grand a year, you know, so they can afford to get into one of these kind of investments. You can have as many of them as you want at the table. So you're raising that 3.3 million bucks. You can have, you know, a hundred of them. I wouldn't recommend that. It would be extremely difficult to manage that many investors, but you could, you know, technically, right? So the way the government says they're protecting you there, they're saying, okay, fine, you can raise money under 506C and it doesn't have to be a public offering, but everybody's got to know what they're doing already. That's a 506C raise. Now, what if, not, what if everybody you want to raise from isn't already rich, isn't already a quote-unquote accredited investor? Well, that's when you need a 506B fundraising model, right? Under 506B, you can raise money from 35 people, no more than 35. I don't know how they picked that number, but that is the number. 35 people that aren't already accredited. And they're just simply called unaccredited investors. They have to be sophisticated, um, they, which means they, they have to say that they understand the investment completely. They can afford to do this. No, we don't have a million bucks in the bank, 
but we can afford this 50,000, you know, to put towards this deal. We can put a hundred grand into this deal because we've got our IRA set up the right way because Philip did a great job setting up the rest of our portfolio. Now we've got a little extra cash, you know, <laughs> that we can use, right? So you can have up to 35 of those people in a 506B fundraise. And then you can add as many of those rich folks as you want to that rate, right? So 506B is 35 unaccredited and unlimited accredited investors, right? So those are the two major vehicles to do fundraising for real estate. 506C, as long as everybody's, you know, accredited and there's, you know, again, various requirements for that, you can have as many as you want. Or 506B, which allows you to bring in 35 people that aren't, you know, already there and then as many people who are already there as you want, right? So those are the two major structures that you're going to see. 95% of real estate deals are, are kind of done under those two structures. And, you know, personally, in, you know, I've, I've been able to close a, a quite a bit of those, you know, in, in my career, uh, especially just prior to COVID. Um, you know, I think we closed about $475 uh, million or so in 506B and 506C raises. So um, I, I, I'm telling you this from that perspective, having seen a lot of these deals from beginning to end, uh, from, you know, conception to funding. And, uh, and so those are going to be your two major areas. But again, I would recommend for new folks, come in with somebody who's doing a raise like that. Come in with somebody who's in a 506B raise or in a 506C raise, depending on your economic level, and learn. You do that a few times, you know, and then you get to a point where you're starting your own fund and you're really getting in the game. That's the way, um, you know, most of the folks you see who are really successful at this are actually doing it. You won't hear that on bigger pockets or on those kind of things, but that's how it really works. So here's here's another thing I was going to ask on the first one, and I don't know if it relates to real estate too, but we, hmm. not we've all, but I know you've heard of the deals where, you know, founders, founders and their team start a company and the company does okay, and then the 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 investors push them to sell, and they don't make any money because of the because of the uh, terms written into the contract of of, of of how the money was was received. So talk talk about that and how you know so, some somebody who starts a company runs it does all the hours and can sell it and basically take no money when when they sell it for millions of dollars. You know how does that happen and how do how does that happen? Yep. Okay. So <laughs> it's interesting, man, how, how that works, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, folks come into businesses thinking that their sweat equity is worth the majority of the company. So let's start by saying, usually it's not right. <laughs> usually it's not worth the majority. Usually the money partner is going to get the, the lion's share of the profits when it's all said and done. But unfortunately, there are a lot of bad actors, I'll say, who prey on newer companies, on entrepreneurs who are so focused on running their business extremely well and doing a great job and, and in need of cash, or they feel like they're in need of cash, that they'll just sign anything, you know, to get a big old chunk of money. And that's what ends up happening. You've got somebody who's been toiling away on a business for five, six years. You know, they've got a nice margin of, uh, you know, to, that's enough for them to live on. But they know to get to that next level, gosh, if I just had a million and a half, I could grow this thing, you know, to, to the moon and beyond. Well, you still need to stop and take a look at the paperwork you're signing because yes, you will be giving up a good amount of your profit. You know what I mean? Especially for the first, you know, say 10 years or so of your business. It all depends on how you structure the deal, but ultimately you should win, right? <laughs> you should win at the end of the day. And so what that comes down to is 
really looking at not just, like how much equity you're going to be able to retain and how the payment structure is broken down. And then, as you said, what what is in your operating agreement that says how your business gets sold? Right. So it's one thing to give up equity in terms of the money. It's another thing to give up control of how the business is run and who the board members are and who gets to make final decisions. So you should expect to give up a lot of the cash to get cash into the business, but you should not. You should fight very aggressively to keep as much of the governance control as you can. Right. And that comes down to how did you how did that preferred equity agreement get set up? That was what we talked about at the beginning, you know, or that convertible note, either one. Ultimately, when it comes down to where the equity is split, is it just splitting the profit or is it splitting the profit and the control? You know, so there's there's the profit aspect of equity and then there's the board seat slash control slash governance aspect of equity. Right. And what we need to do is make sure that all small, mid-sized businesses, entrepreneurs, founders, et cetera, have good legal counsel with them to help negotiate those preferred equity agreements or those convertible notes or those common equity agreements. However, you know, doesn't matter what the you know word you put on it is, making sure that you're represented well, not just in how much money is going to be in your pocket, but how much governance you're going to have in your company over the long term. Because what you're describing, Philip, is a situation where a company reaches a certain amount of profit and the folks that put in their original money want to get out. And go put their money somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But in so doing, they sell before the founder has had an opportunity to reap any of the benefits financially, right? So in that situation, that founder has to have already drafted their agreements so that nobody can sell without their consent, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody can pull their money without certain uh, benchmarks having been met. The, the founder, in my mind, should try to stay in that role of chair of the board as long as possible. Essentially, you know, and and what happens is they lose that chair. They lose that seat for money and then they don't realize that now they've really given up everything because they're not looking 10, 10 years down the line, even five years down the line. They're trying to figure out how to keep things afloat in that moment. And again, that's where it's absolutely critical to invest in a strong corporate law team to be able to uh, represent your interests in those negotiations. While you're running the company, somebody's got to be taking care of your agreement and making sure that, you know, you're not giving away the, you know, the, the baby with the bathwater. And and that's a good point. And, and you probably see this too, being in Dallas. This is not a problem in, in California where it's normal, but I, I can also mm-hmm. see some companies that are saying that might shortchange themselves on valuation, meaning, meaning there's lots of money out there, right? But if you find a founder founder that's that has a good business idea, a long runway to, to make money. They really don't need the money, but if they take the money, it can be, it can accelerate the growth. You know, I think a lot of them try right. to try to value their business on traditional cash flow models, but I'm like, no, nah, you don't have to. Like, you know, if if you can show that, hey, over time you're gonna you're gonna make money, I'm gonna make money, and 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 you can right. you can model that conservatively. You can have a, a relatively, like people with money won't balk at a at a evaluation that you might consider big because it's not about like the valuation it's about the deal and the alternative uses of money out there right so can can you talk more about your experience in that realm as far as like valuation and not thinking of it in the traditional because right it's, it's different when you value a business that's matured and that has 30 years and is not really growing but right a, but a newer business right. that has nothing but upside that's valued way differently like you know what i mean 
Yeah, it is. It is. And yeah, I can't, I can definitely speak to that. I can definitely speak to that, but I think the best examples I'll be able to use are big examples that like all of us understand. Mm -hmm. Right. So think about WeWork, right? Um, It's a great example in one way and a terrible in another. It's a great example in that they sold the market on, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations. Same thing for Snapchat without any revenue models or, you know, I'm sorry, revenue history to prove that up. Right. <laughs> so I only mention those two to say that there is precedent for, for billions, billions of dollars moving successfully based on an idea, you know, based on a, I think this is the way it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, 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 there's, there's a reason those companies and who's behind them and who's on their board and who's in the background controlling other partners to join is really critical. Right. So I think, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with being aggressive about how you think your business is going to go, but you do need to be able to prove it up as best as possible based on as many factors as you can put into play, right? So, you know, Snapchat, if you look at them, you know, their thought process was, okay, well, if you look at these other, you know, sort of apps that have come out that have, you know, offered a social media, uh, you know, presence, um, once that presence gets established, there's a bunch of revenue. There's a bunch of ad revenue. That's really the whole value proposition. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't actually done it yet, right? But they just went like, look at Facebook. They did it. We can do it. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. And that was it. They just had to find an example of someone else who had already done it. They piggybacked is what I'm trying to say off of them. And it didn't work, but it doesn't matter, right? Their, their CEOs you know, went off into the sunset in their golden parachute. But my point is like there's – there's definitely money to be had in the idea of something that could come. It's the same thing with WeWork. People are looking saying, hey, real estate rates are way too high. And we've got – look at all these entrepreneurs we've got all over the world that, that don't want to pay you know, three grand a month for a 1,000-square-foot office. They don't need that. Why don't we cater to them? Mm-hmm. No, it hasn't been done yet, but you know, like we'll do it. And they actually did, you know, a pretty great job of it. There's some issues with the CEO, but you know, they did a really great job of it. And now everybody's incorporated that into their structure. This is, of course, pre-COVID, and the way that this, uh, the way that that rolled out was perfect because it really hit when the market was just starting to get almost too hot in real estate in general. Mm-hmm. So everybody was just super excited about it from a psychological perspective. Uh, but it worked, right? So I think. What, what I'm getting to here is if you're going to evaluate on something that's not based on historical revenue, then what you're doing is branding. You're doing sales. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And like you can do it, but embrace it, you know, and fully flesh it out from that perspective. You know what I mean? That this is about sales. This is about looking at what other folks have done uh, in similar markets. We know we can do this. You have to get people excited. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an emotional and psychological plea as opposed to a numbers-based one, right? But the stronger your plea is, absolutely, the more you can come to the table and say, listen, I'm not giving up everything. You see the value here. You know what I mean? I'm not giving this all up, you know, just because I don't have this long history and this long runway. And you can point to 50 companies that have done that successfully in the past when your uh, potential investors say, no, you can't do it that way, right? Yep. So I do. I think that I think you absolutely can look at it that way. And I would also say there are a number of really great venture capital firms now that are looking for those types of companies, right? And so part of it is you go, you pitch, 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 pitch. You know, I was reading up on a founder uh, recently who actually is a former corporate lawyer, and um, you know, she she had worked uh, worked at Deloitte. You know, she had worked at, in big law. 
Um, she came up with this great SAAS uh, platform that she wanted to sell, you know, and she said, you know, she, she lived in Silicon Valley, had all the relationships. She said she had um, 50 pitch meetings, you know, with 50 of her so-called like best buddies, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Before she actually got her first little bit of funding, you know, 50 different groups like that. So it's, it, it, if, if that's not sales, I don't know what is. Right. You know what I mean? That's right. the same as going door to door trying to flip, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, electricity, you know, switching to a new plan or selling knives or whatever. I mean, you are literally going door to door. Well, hopefully with people that you have relationships with and pitching, 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 pitching. So you have to be an incredible salesperson and have 100 percent confidence in what you're trying to do. And then, yes, you can create value or show value to things other than, you know, your historical uh, P&Ls. And what about this too? Like, and this is just this is just freestyling it yeah. on, on that note. It's something I thought about, and I, I don't know if we talked about, but with with all this money out there and only so many like, you know, quote unquote unicorn businesses um, right. that that are out there, but you have all this money. I, I and it may already be happening, but I even see like, let's say somebody has like a cleaners, right? They say, hey, look, I, you know, my cleaners. I've been growing it by twenty percent a year for the last you know, five years when I, when I opened it. And so, you know, if you just project that out over 10 years, you're like, here's, here's minimum kind of what I, what I'll grow to, you know, without money. Right. And so you can work backwards right. and say, Hey, I think you can have a higher valuation than normal, but you can say, Hey, listen, let's work to the deal to where worst case scenario, your downside is limited because I can pay you out of this in the future. And, and you can make right. better, you can make better than putting the money in the bank or, or, or better than, you know, because returns on overall asset classes are just lower, period, right? So you don't have the as high upside as you had in venture 10 years ago, right? So so that's kind of a factor. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a baseline, but then you can say, but if we do start doubling it with some money over the next right. whatever years, because there's, there's zero cleaners that are doing business like it's 2020, you know, and here's right. my plan for doing that. And we can dominate these four cities in the Metroplex. Right, um, and you kind of map that out. Then that that increases the valuation. But are 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 you seeing? And I don't know if that's a hybrid between venture and private equity, but I would consider that venture no, because, that, that's because exactly that's exactly what it is, man. That's exactly what it is, Philip. It's a hybrid. And yes, I mean that that is actually. I'm, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's exactly what it is. Now, if you think venture capital, right? You're usually thinking, I don't know, an app. Or some biotech thing, you know, you're thinking Silicon Valley. It's got a certain there's a certain culture to the types of businesses that your venture capital firms are going to be interested in, right? And they're mostly gonna be in that tech space, right? So what you said is really interesting because you're talking about, hey, look, I'm on the ground out here. I got a cleaners that's like functioning at a really high level, or I have a restaurant that's doing extremely well, or I got a few of those, you know, that's doing well right now. So I think I can grow ABC. That takes us right back. You actually just provided the perfect example of a 506B raise or a 506C raise for a business. That's mm-hmm. exactly how it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't really have much else to say on the point because you really defined it perfectly. You know, uh, if you want to, if you have a business that's not necessarily the kind of business or at the kind of scale, right, that a VC is going to be looking for, you're not, you know, talking about a you know, a, a 20 multiple, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You're talking about some, some normal, you know, say 20% IRR returns, which are nice, really nice returns, honestly, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But, you know, you're in that kind of space. Um, and it's for, uh, you know, maybe it's not the sexiest business in the whole world. You know, you didn't invent the new Twitter, you know, <laughs> but you <laughs> yeah. have a, a good business that's functioning well. I have several today, right now, today, 
Um, I have several clients who are doing exactly what you're talking about. They've been running their business successfully, whether it be in the, uh, you know, medical field, dental field, you know, they've been running their offices really well. Uh, again, restaurants, image cleaners, similar types of businesses. They've been running them well for a while. They've got their spreadsheet to show, you know, hey, look, this is how we do our business. Then it's simply putting together a business plan for this is how we're going to grow it. You know, this is how we're going to, this is who we're going to hire to replicate this. And you present that business plan the same way you present a real estate business plan mm -hmm. under a 506B or 506C uh, fundraising platform, right? And that's how you go raise that money and do it legally. <laughs> you know, make sure you don't end up getting it all taken from you uh, by going after people you shouldn't be going after. Uh, so yeah, no, you're absolutely uh, right, uh, man. Uh, it, private equity has jumped into the VC space and, in a big way. And, and, 506 raises. And, and I brought that up because so many people in that position, they think, oh, the bank's only going to give me 10% of revenues. Oh, man. You know, I'm like, no, man, it's like a lot of money out there that that has nothing, nowhere to go. You know, it's just sitting, it's just sitting there because banks aren't paying anything. And, 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 and returns of all asset class have come, in, has come down. So, um, so there, and, and there, there's a whole lot less good operators and boring businesses, you know, than there are, you know, good operators and, 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 you know, the other stuff, the sexy stuff. I agree. I agree with that completely. You know, there's people quietly doing extremely well that would love to partner with others, you know, and continue that growth. And I think a lot of folks who are working their nine to five, you know, or they're, you know, eight to six or eight to seven, you know, right now who want to move to that next level, who want to work on their business rather than in their business, that is the key, right, is identifying their success and building on it, you know, by saying, hey, I can scale this thing. You know, I can take this to the next level. Um, I'm going to need you to come with this amount of equity. And then I can take that to my banks and really do some damage. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because, you, you know, you come to the banks with, yeah, you know, I'm going to need this commercial loan. Yeah, I know I don't fit your you know, your normal underwriting for this, but, um, yeah, here's 30%. Matter of fact, here's 40%. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> and you shop that around, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like to your local bank, it doesn't have to be, you know, the big, you know, it doesn't have to be Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, you know, we, you know, we could talk local banks, you know, uh, you know, origin where, you know, uh, BB and T or Simmons bank, um, credit unions, you know what I'm saying? Like there are lots of options out there for lenders that are interested in those types of deals, um, you just got to be willing to put yourself out there and, and say, hey, my business does work. Here's the plan. And here's how we're going to grow it. Um, and then, you know, yeah, I help folks, you know, kind of manage the structuring aspect of that. Well, shall I let everybody know how they can reach you, how they can yeah, just find out more about you and, and, and if they have any questions, how they can get to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the best way to get to me is, you know, set an appointment, you know, we've got the Calendly and Zoom, we all kind of live and die by that these days. Um, you can reach uh, my firm by phone at 972-946-6262. That's 972-946-6262. Or you can free, feel free to email us at info at tate-legal.com. That's I-N-F-O at T-A-T-E-L-E-G-A-L.com. And, of course, if you just want to check out a little bit about what we do on the website, www.tate-legal.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from folks, uh, talk about your deals, and you know, hopefully help, help you move your businesses forward. 
All right. Well, hey, I, I I definitely appreciate you. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and answer about three or four questions, so you can hop off if you need to, or hang on, hang on the line and listen, or whatever you want to do. I don't mind hanging on. It might be interesting to hear, but I'll, I'll mute and go right ahead. All right. Cool. Cool. First question, Philip. Should I max out my 401k? Yes, you should max out your 401k. Next question. No, I'm just playing. Just playing. Look, <laughs> look. So here, <laughs> listen. So. If you have a 401k plan and they're giving you a match, you're put you're leaving free money on the table if you don't at least do the match. And the match is different than maxing out your 401k plan, right? So the match would be if your employer says, "Hey, if 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 you put in 3% of, you know, of 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 your salary, you know, we'll put in 3% of your salary." Or they might say 1%. That's, different matches are different, but that's a that's a match, and typically, if you're not a super high income person, you can put in more money than the match, right? And and those rules change every year. I think right now it's close to you know twenty thousand a year. I don't know the actual number, but you can go to the IRS website and say and just type in or just Google four hundred one k max for twenty twenty, and it'll break it down in age and all that. But you can put away quite a bit of money into a four hundred one k plan, and so. First thing is, if, you, if you're getting the match, at least do the match. And then what you want to do is look at your plan and say, do I have credit card debt? Do we have adequate reserves? Right? And and that needs to be prioritized. But let's assume that you have a good emergency fund, you have no credit card debt, then yeah, and you're saving for retirement, then max it out. Put as much money as you can into your 401k plan uh, because as your money grows, you don't have to pay taxes on the growth, right? Depending on uh, with a 401k plan, you can put money in pre-tax or in a Roth type form, right? And the difference is when you're taxed, um, the pre-tax uh, form, when you put money in, let's say you put in $20,000, you get to deduct that on your taxes this year. But when you take money out in retirement, you got to pay taxes on the money as you take it out every single year as, as income, Versus a Roth, where if you put in 20, you don't get a deduction this year, but you get to take out the money you put in, plus all the gains tax-free in retirement. But along the way, with both of them, as you make money in the plan, you don't pay taxes on it. So it is advantageous for retirement to max out and put as much money as you can in there. A lot of people will say, well, hey, but I don't know if I want to do that, Philip, because my 401k plan sucks. A A lot of times, I mean... Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of 401k plans that sucks. Like we we manage 401k plans and advise on 401k plans. There are a lot of terrible 401k plans in the small business market. However, if even with the terrible 401k plans for the clients that I have that are individual clients and not 401k clients where I'm managing a 401k plan investments, if I'm dealing with an individual client and I don't control the investments in their 401k plan, a lot of times I can sit with them and say, all right, let's look at all these options even though they're not great, we can build a portfolio with the subpar options. That's at least going to give you a decent outcome over time. And it still would make sense for you to max it out and use those options because you can't really control that unless they get me in the plan. Right. So, but, but yes, the, the answer is max out your 401k plan. If you've done the work of paying off your credit card debt and having ample cash reserves in case of an emergency. Because I'm just not a fan of taking loans on your 401k plan. I, I would much rather people have a good solid foundation before they stuff all their extra money into 401k plans. So that's my two cents. Next question. Philip, what's the gambler's mentality? The gambler's mentality. Let's talk about this. So 
as as humans, our minds are just not wired to assess risk well and make money in the markets because for whatever reason, we just like to gamble. You know, it's I, I talk about it all the time, but that's literally the city of Vegas is, is built off of it. Texas raises billions and billions of dollars off the lottery and so does other other states. Gambling is like an addictive drug that our mind for some reason loves. And a lot of people who are investing in the stock market really are not investing. They're gambling. And people will say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is if you don't have a process for making buy and sell decisions, like if you if, if your buy and sell decisions is, hey, what does this guy or girl on TV say I should buy? Or what does this person in the Facebook group say I should buy or sell? If you don't have a, your own defined decision-making process for buying and selling your investments and knowing how much is going to go into each investment, then you're gambling. Because in order to build the process, you have to be able to quantify risk and assess the odds. You have to know, all right, based on history, if I do this or do that, my odds of success are X, right? And how do my odds increase over different periods of time or decrease over different periods of time? Like There's a lot of thought that goes into building an investment process and if you don't have that and you're investing your own money, you're gambling, right? You could say, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to give my money to somebody who has a process. That's not gambling, right? You say, what's your process? How do you build your process? Let me understand it. Cool. Your process is good. I'm going to use your process. But if you're doing it on your own and you do not have a process, then you're gambling, right? It does, then it, you can feel how you want to feel about it, but it's truth. And, and, and sometimes when you gamble, Right. If new gamblers always, I don't know, it's weird. Like if you're a new gambler, like new gamblers win a lot of times. Right. And and it and it sucks them in because they develop bad habits. They think, oh, man, I know what I'm doing. You know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, you're just lucky. Right. The stock. Everybody. Nine nine thought they were stock pickers. Right. You know, Steve is in the studio. He's my audio engineer. Like Steve remembers 1999 when everybody became stock pickers. Right. Same thing's happening again. Right. Same, you, now you have the last three years. Everybody's a stock picker. They went away and they they went away in 01 until 2017. And you know the reason why that happened, right? Because the 20 and 30 year olds in 1999 hadn't lived through that kind of a market. And now the gamblers are that were 20 and 30 are now older and wiser, and so they're not doing the foolery. But now the new 20 and 30 years are doing the foolery, right? And then before 1999, you had people in the you know early 70s, late 60s doing the same things, the parents of the people that were 20 and 99. So human beings, we do the same thing over and over again, right? Every 25 years or so, you get this gambler's mentality that pops up and invades the market, which is what we're in right now. And everybody thinks that they're a market guru, right? And and it's, it's I kind of I kind of laugh, but then I kind of feel bad for laughing because I don't really want people to lose money. But people get real cocky this period of time saying, oh, you know, Warren Buffett, you're old or Jim Cramer, you're old. You don't know what to do. I'm like, nah, just wait. Just wait. Investing is a lot different than technology, right? Technology can knock out old, displaced ways of doing business, but investing is time-tested and principles that just work, right? So that's my two cents on that. Next question. Philip, how do you stack up against door-to-door advisors? I didn't, I didn't want to put the actual company's name in there, but I got asked that this week from somebody. And, I, and, and, and so my response was actually it was less political in in, in person, but I'm gonna give you the, the the nicer version of what I said. So, pretty for for the most part, if you're dealing with somebody who's a fiduciary, right, which somebody who's held, who's held to a higher standard by law of giving advice, 
you know, so so for example, for me, we don't sell, we don't get paid a commission to sell products. Our, our advice is, is fee based. So so we're not getting any kickbacks or commissions for selling different products from different companies. It's it's very objective. So if if and fiduciaries are a small percentage of the market of advisors, right? People who are fiduciaries only, not that many of them as a percentage of advisors out there. So if you're dealing with a fiduciary, then you're already on the track to just about winning, right? There's some bad fiduciaries, but for the most part, you've you've aligned yourself with an advisor that can give you objective advice. The majority of them, so the people that go door to door, a, a lot of them might have a dual registration where they they have the license to be a fiduciary, but they also operate as a commission-based salesperson. And it's difficult for you as the um, consumer to know which one you're dealing with. And when I look in the portfolio of the people who are working with those type of advisors, they're in high commission products because it pays more, right? It's kind of like a butcher, right? Asking a butcher, should I eat meat? What do you think they're going to say, right? So it pays their bills. And so that was my response. My response is, I'm not competition for anybody who sells products, right? If I'm not dealing with somebody who's investing money with their brother-in-law or somebody who they have a strong relationship with, it's a clear no-brainer once I explain to them the difference between a fiduciary and not. And if they're not a fiduciary, there's zero competition, you know, because from an alignment standpoint, I'm able to give better objective price. Because for the most part, we all have access to the same products. There's no, you know, the broker that, the independent brokers that I might use and the brokers that they have, they're going to have access to most of the same products that we're using to build portfolios. The difference is, you know, out of all those products, which ones are best for the clients? And if you have somebody who's who's paid more to sell the worst, the terrible products because they have to pay them more because they're terrible products, you know, and somebody who doesn't, it's not even it's not even the person is a better person. Like a, the the character traits can be the same. They can have the same character, but the incentives are aligned to not benefit the client in that type of situation. So that was a long version of what I said in, in the when, when I was asked. What I said when I was asked was it's not it's no competition. Like I kill them, you know. That's that's what I said. <laughs> Let's see. Last question. What's the importance of insurance reviews? Since I do investments in, in financial planning. And, and don't sell products, which is which includes insurance. I used to back in the day, but not anymore. I don't do a very good job of of, of talking about this on, on the podcast, and so I wanted to bring it up for a couple of different reasons. I'm not, and I'm not just talking about life insurance. I'm really talking about property and casualty liability insurance because specifically with COVID, there was a lot of businesses or people that thought their coverage covered certain things, and it, and it didn't cover certain things, like you know travel policies and business interruption insurance. And and so it's it's very important, you know. And it's funny we're having a conversation. I didn't I didn't put this on here because we're I had an attorney on here. But is insurance is very similar to having good legal advice, right? You you need to have a good, in my opinion, insurance agent. Independent is, you know, might be even preferable. But leaving that out for a second, you want to have a good insurance person who's explaining to you your coverage, what you have, right? What you need versus what you sh- you know should get for extra protections in your situation, but you want to review that constantly, right? Because things change, laws change, different. There's different discounts that might happen every single year based on your situation, and so having an insurance review annually with a good insurance agent um, is a is a really good really good practice, right? So I I have a couple a couple of insurance agents that are part of my quote unquote team that. 
you know, I'm like, hey, if anybody needs to have an insurance review, they'll 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 review the policies with in a no pressure situation because they know if they pressure my clients to buy anything, I'm gonna I do Muay Thai so I can come see them with my face mask on. But <laughs> but uh, but that's just really really important to have, and because a maybe you could save some money, b maybe you are underinsured somewhere to and and if that liability happens you are going to lose a lot of money or use use a lot of your assets and then see maybe you're overinsured somewhere maybe you bought some coverage before that you really didn't understand and you really can do without and in the time that we're in right now right i would i would review to see if i can like cut something somewhere that i don't really need because maybe you need some extra money so review it make you know review insurance coverage right? it's really really important you know i i would probably put insurance on an equal weighting with investment and legal advice. It's not talked about enough. That is the episode for today. This weekend is going to be hot again. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch tones for a second because what's also going on this weekend is one of my closest friends, mom passed, Mama Coleman. You know, we love you. Appreciate you. We are going to be celebrating her life tomorrow. You know, just, you know, really good person. You know, for me, she... She became a, back in the day when I was an early advisor, a client of mine, when I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. Just, you know, just wanted to see uh, all of us win. So it's, you know, we'll celebrate her life tomorrow. We just, you know, want to tribute, throw a tribute to her and, you know, let, let her know up upstairs that I appreciate her and love her. And we'll, we'll continue to take care of her, her grandkids and her son and make sure that they are good through this time. So signing off, y'all. Have a good one. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.